Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. My name is Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So my guest today is Chris Bale. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. So, so Chris is a leading computational social scientist. And, uh, you know, it's definitely been on my radar for a while as an interesting field. And I've talked to a couple other people who are, are in it. But I really love Chris's perspective. His official title is Professor of Sociology and Public Policy at Duke University, where he directs the Polarization Lab. And uh, his previous book to this is Terrified, How Anti-Muslim uh, Fringe Organizations Became Mainstream. So, yeah, he's he's got a really interesting story with really strong roots in sociology and social science, that sort of stuff, and then getting into computational methods when they first started to become integrated into the way people were starting to think about social problems and that sort of stuff. And so he's been a big figure in that field and has done a lot of cool research, especially when it comes to social media. So his most recent book is Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. And it's a really good book. Uh, I know I sound surprised about that. I'm not sure why I sound surprised about that, but like it is an above average quality book, both in its delivery uh, because the the story, like one thing we when we kind of touch on this is that the stories uh, in a lot of books these days are just sort of like, oh, here is, you know, something to you sort of like, here's a spoonful of something sweet to make the medicine of the ideas go down. Whereas the, the stories and the illustrations Chris uses actually are crucial to the argument that he's making and not just sort of icing on the cake. Um, and so that's really cool in terms of, uh, I think he's, he's done a good job in writing it. And I just think that this is one of the biggest topics that especially in anything vaguely psychological or sociological, uh, one of the biggest topics that we can be thinking about right now is the effects of social media on our our thinking and our society and all this sort of stuff. And he's got a lot of really cool, concise, and punchy observations throughout the book. So I really liked it, and I recommend checking it out. At any rate, it was fun to talk to Chris and you know just get a little bit of his perspective on some of those problems as well as hear how he got to study these things and came to be a computational social scientist by you know the path of actual social science so without any further ado here is chris So the thing that I usually like to start off with is uh, by asking people, uh, where did you grow up? I was born in a very comfortable upper middle class suburb of Boston. Um, and I had a very typical uh, childhood until age 10. Um, my father was a doctor and um, he was a kind of general practitioner. And, you know, we, we had, again, you know, did all the things that a family and in the suburbs at that time does, you know. Um, and then my dad, who always kind of had an altruistic streak in him, decided to go to public health school and became um, quite suddenly um, one of the people directly responsible for rolling out the World Health Organization's AIDS uh, campaign in the early 90s. And we were moved to 
Brazzaville in the French Congo um, when I was 11 years old. So I have a kind of a very punctuated childhood story. Um, I, uh, I I was not ready for um, you know the the juxtaposition of you know a life of of privilege and what was then uh, a country divided by a civil war. Yeah. Wow. Um, so yeah, did that did that entail? Yeah, I guess how much how much how much moving around was there? Well, I spent. I mean, I was very fortunate. Um, by the time I'd been to college, I'd lived in China and. Um, Switzerland as well, um, but um, uh, the French Congo was certainly the most transformational experience for me. Um, you know, at the time, um, the plan was for me to go to an international school in what was then Zaire um, or Kinshasa, which was the capital city of Zaire at the time. But there was a ruthless dictator who had, um, you know, really um, launched sort of a civil war. And, you know, by the time we arrived there, we could hear, you know, grenades exploding on the other side of the Congo River, which separates um, what's now known as, as the Republic of Congo from the, what's now considered uh, the Congo Republic or French Congo. And so, uh, yeah, that, that didn't happen. I didn't, didn't go to um, Kinshasa. Yeah. So I guess that uh, that goes a little way towards explaining how you ended up studying government in French for your undergraduate, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and also, you know, uh, if I'm if I'm like reflecting back on it, um, really a lifelong interest in ethnic conflict and just how people who are on the face of it so similar can come to hate each other so much. Um, you know, certainly the French Congo, though, I think, you know, many people are familiar with the story of the other Congo. The French Congo also had a horrific, um, you know, um, many decades long uh, civil conflict. And um, I observed at quite a young age some some pretty horrific violence. And, um, you know, I think a lot of my scholarly path was just profoundly shaped by that. You know, not just seeing the conflict, but also seeing the consequences of the conflict. You know, um, children who had lost limbs because they didn't get a four cent vaccination or, um, you know, families torn apart. I mean, all these, you know, really shocking things for a, a relatively privileged kid from the suburbs to, to suddenly get dropped into. Yeah. So what at the time, what did you make of that, you know, transition? Was it when your dad came home from work one day and was like, hey, we're moving to Congo. <laughs> was that like, all right, sweet new adventure? Or was that how did you respond to that at the time? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it was certainly an adventure. I will, I will say that, um, you know, we I, I uh, my dad was a very captivating person. He uh he believes strongly in the in the potential of, of good in people. And I think that was so captivating that, you know, that still kind of shapes a lot of my work today. You know, like I just finishing a book on, you know, how we can defeat polarization on social media. So if that doesn't make me an optimist, I don't I don't know what does. But um but certainly, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I was excited. Um I don't think I knew what what I was in for and and you know my family actually became the victim of some um, some uh, some violence, and my dad was arrested. So it's it, you know, and and, and um, uh, you know, there were there was a series of very negative events that I think made me not fondly reckon, uh, you know remember the experience, but but certainly um, you know opened my mind to the world. You know, um, I think in retrospect, I feel very fortunate to have um, you know to have the chance to to see a different place and. 
and you know since then I, I've, I've really been um, you know fascinated to to you know um, just understand how societies tick and, and again how people who can seem so similar um, can can become so terrible towards each other was there anything about uh, so I get what were the what were the ages that you lived in the Congo for I was only there for about a year and a half, um, around age 11. Um, my dad um, was there for some time more. He was actually one of the last UN employees out of the country on the on a helicopter with, with Marines. So he was there till the bitter end. But um, but my, my mother and I left after, um, you know, after the violence uh, got got really, really scary. Um, and, and both of us uh, are, you know, and after my dad had been arrested. For what, what was your dad arrested for? My dad was also a very stubborn man. Uh, he uh, uh, he had refused to play, pay a bribe to a police officer who had pulled him over for um, some kind of traffic violation. And uh, he was a man of principle, I guess. I, 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 you know, it was the end of the month, and 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 in these kind of you know failed states, um, that's how things work. And and he just refused to accept that. So, yeah, that's. Uh, my dad went to jail yeah that'll do it that'll do it won't it um i guess so yeah uh god that's that's so interesting and then so so after that did you go straight back to to boston suburban cushy life after that yeah of course i mean you're never the same after an experience was it like like that that scene in in castaway with like tom hanks like once he comes back from the (laughs) island and he's like he's holding the lighter like in the like conference i don't know turns the lighter on and off after like spending months and months (laughs) trying to get the yeah. One of those sort of experiences for you as a 12 year old? Yeah, I don't know that I was, what was he doing, talking to a coconut or something like that? I don't think I, I, I had that that much of a, um, you know, a, a, a shock to the system. But um, but yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, things are, are very different. And, you know, I kind of, um, I kind of took this weird U turn, which actually I write a little bit about in the new book because my father passed away. Um, two years ago now. And so a lot of, um, you know, the story of this book starts with, with, um, this early experience, but also kind of like a really weird path. I mean, I, um, so having grown up in the kind of UN kind of, uh, family, I guess you could say, um, I really wanted to work for the United Nations. I kind of wanted to do a lot of what my, my dad had done. And so I, you know, I became an international relations and government, um, major. And because I had learned a little bit of French, in the French Congo, um, I wound up um, doing an internship in the um, United Nations um, Development Program Office in Geneva. And um, so I, I, you know, early on, um, I don't think academia was really even um, on my radar screen. I didn't really have any, you know, role models who were academics, um, but I did have this kind of, you know, this inspiration to, to, to I don't know, to try to do some good. Um, and. Uh, then discovered in the UN, um, you know, that, you know, that whole field is, is really not quite what I thought it would be. And I thought like every day it was, you know, well, here's how we're going to save several, you know, a thousand people in, in this situation with this intervention. And instead, you know, I got a little bit, I think, um, uh, disillusioned um, by the mismatch between, you know, what seemed to actually be happening and, and, and what people were doing. And then I think probably that's what kindled the kind of deeper intellectual questions like what's really going on and and how could we really know and 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 i think that's what led me to sociology what at what point did the disillusionment come in was that after undergraduate were you were you doing like an internship (laughs) or what did what 
when did that start to set in? Well, you know, the old joke, like, you know, you, you get your BA, you think you know everything, you get your master's degree, you think you know nothing, and then you get your PhD, and you still think you know nothing, but you realize that neither does anybody else. Yeah, yeah. And and that captures my experience pretty well. I mean, you know, yeah, I think, um, you know, um, there is that kind of um, soul-searching moment, um, you know, uh, in, in the path that I think almost everyone I know has a story of, you know, questioning the, the, the academic path. It's, 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 it's a tricky path. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, right. So, but, uh, there wasn't, if I, if I, if my notes are correct, there wasn't a, too much of a, uh, gap between undergrad and when you started your graduate studies at Harvard. Right. So that was, that mm -hmm. was only a year or two in between. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I know, I was the last person into my cohort at, at, at Harvard off the waiting list. So I just barely squeaked in somehow. I still yeah. don't know how, but um, <laughs> um, yeah, you don't have to get in by a lot. You just have to get in. Yeah. That's, you just got to get in. Exactly. I think that's yeah. a way undervalued point, uh, is, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's part, part of this whole constellation of wisdom. Like, uh, you know, the finished thesis uh, is always going to be better than the incrementally improved, but not finished thesis. Oh, yeah. Getting into the graduate mm -hmm. school doesn't matter how much you got in by, as long as you get into it. That's that's. Right. Uh, I think finding that sweet spot is uh, is crucial and, and, for any any successful trajectory. And you know, it carries on to um, into you know journal publications. You know, you don't publish one hundred percent of the papers you ne you never submit. You know, I still remember. Um, you know, my advisor, Michelle Labonte, who's just a, a brilliant um, sociologist, for, if, if some of your listeners don't know her work, um, she always used to tell me, and I remember at the time this was crushing, but in retrospect, it's some of the best advice I ever got. She said, you know, Chris, um, academia is something like 5% creativity and 95% endurance. And at the time, I was like, oh, man, I'm here to be, you know, I'm here to, I'm here to innovate and I'm here to, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to, to live the life of the mind and all this. But in retrospect, I mean, she's just dead on right. You know, I mean, the, that that dogged, you know, um, pursuit of the questions that, you know, motivate you is is really all that we have. And, and you know, um, I think, um, you know, the, the further I get along in this career, the more I the more I think, you know, endurance is an, is an underrated uh, trait. Um, yeah, so I, I do want to ask you about your, uh, uh, you know, studying under Michelle, because I'm a huge fan of her, her work. And I'm just always curious to hear about people's formative experiences with mentors. But mm -hmm. I, uh, I want to ask, so uh, it's, it's not like going from UN to academic sociology is like you went from one fraught path to one that's just, you know, all daisies and, and into the clear, you know, blue yeah. sky. So what, tell me a little bit more about that decision. Was there a moment that was like, oh, you know, I've been thinking about it in this uh, one particular way, but now really what I want to do is is sociology. I'm going to pursue that. Yeah. What was that decision like for you? Yeah, well, at the time, you know, I was really interested in yeah, refugee resettlement. I mean, this probably sounds crazy for anybody who knows my work. You know, I, I, I write on social media and political polarization. I've, you know, written in the past about um, how fringe ideas about Muslims became mainstream, you know, I've done some work in public health. So, but, but really that came out of the UN experience. I wanted a way to, to, to study refugee resettlement, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was actually initially under the spell of, of the great 
Orlando Patterson, who's um, you know one of the most I think brilliant comparative historical sociologists out there. Um, and for anyone who's ever met the man, I mean, he's he's a conversationalist par excellence. You know, he can he can talk about anything with anyone. And I just remember in my first um, you know maybe hundred days of graduate school, just sitting on his couch and just feeling like I was kind of like receiving wisdom. You know, just just kind of in awe of how much he knew and about so many different parts of the world. But a theme um, that really came up in those early conversations and also came up um, with Michelle, who I was also, of course, being impressed by at the time, was just the, the importance of, of culture and identity and ideology. And, you know, if you're out to explain those types of things, um, how ideas motivate people, how um, identities motivate us, I mean, I think sociology pretty uniquely can not only offer, you know, the opportunity to pursue, you know, explanations of where those things come from, but also just the most, in my view, uh, the most complete um, explanation of where those things come from. So, you know, we know, um, you know, we, we can we can simultaneously, uh, you know, um, use tools from say social psychology, but but equally so social network analysis or or media studies or 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 really spend time with with. Um, with real people too, you know, which is something I think a lot of intellectuals don't don't do enough. And that's certainly something I learned from Michelle Lamont is the value of actually, you know, um, connecting with and understanding the uh, you know, the point of view of the of the people you're studying. And of course she's she's a brilliant example of that in in, in her her work on um, uh, comparative race and, and and class dynamics in France and the US especially. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then what, um, when did you in graduate school start to feel like uh, you got traction towards a particular problem? Like you said, you had an idea of, of, of what you were uh, interested in, that sort of stuff. When did that start to, when did you start to be able to articulate that in something that, you mm -hmm. know, looked like what it came to be? So, I, I, again, I knew from an, from an early age that I wanted to study, you know, um, conflict um and especially conflict around identity and so that that was central and and um you know i knew i knew that was the, the kind of question i wanted to ask at the time though um one thing that was a little frustrating was the ways to study those things were a little limited you know i mean this was now um 10 years ago or so or a little more than that 15 years ago and um you know really your options were like you could get some survey data um and and you can ask people about their identities you could, um, you know, maybe you could do an experiment if you were ex exceptionally lucky, you know, there with these things were really expensive at the time, or you could talk to people, you could interview people or do, do ethnography. And, um, you know, a lot of this had been done. Um, you know, a lot of the, um, the biggest questions though, about things like where do identities come from? How do ideas travel? How are they transformed and how do they diffuse across, you know, the public sphere? These were things that I was really excited about. But none of these techniques can really let you capture the scale of, say, an idea traveling across a system of, of people. And so that's where I think the, the, the second kind of most transformational experience I had, if the first was, you know, these conversations with Orlando Patterson and Michelle Lamont about identity, the second was a, a kind of um, a real exciting seminar that um, Gary King, the political scientist, who's a, you know, a very well-known methodologist was was um, organizing at the time on um, quantitative analysis of text or qualitative data. 
And, you know, I was sitting there thinking like, well, we've got all these problems. We can't measure things at, at scale. And, you know, all the biggest questions in sociology are, in my opinion, we're at that kind of level of analysis. And here was this, you know, group of people who were doing things like, you know, studying hundreds of thousands of documents. And I just thought, wow, um, this is the way that, that sociology and, and really social science more broadly needs to go. And so that that workshop, which spawned, you know, so many great, um, so many great scholars in retrospect was really a, a turning point for me too. What was the name of that workshop again? I think it was called the quantitative analysis of qualitative data workshop or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Didn't have a cool name. Yeah. Cause I, it was pretty I, bland. Yeah. I had, um, uh, another computational social scientist, Simon Santola on recently. Sure, yeah. Uh, and I can't, I, there was another workshop like that around a similar sort of time uh, that also got him off on his uh, trajectory sure. like that. So I, I, um, I can't remember the name of it at the moment, though. I'll have to compare that. I mean, it was an amazing time. You know, like, yeah. you know, now the idea of, you know, data science and being inundated with data is so pervasive. And I imagine if I was starting graduate school right now, this would sound so strange to me, you know, so foreign that there was a time when, you know, nobody was, nobody was talking about, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases and nobody was talking about using, you know, machine learning or, or any other kind of, you know, tools within the data science toolkit to, to study things like culture identity. So, you know, it really was, um, fortuitous. I feel really lucky that I just kind of happened to be in the right place, right time. I'm, I'm sure a lot of other people you have on this, on this podcast feel the same way. It's, uh, <laughs> that's one way to read the, um, you know, people, people often talk about when you talk to like successful academics, well, obviously yeah. there's a lot of survivorship bias and what predicts that survivorship bias, uh, oh, yeah. you know, to some extent is, is, you know, yeah. these are all people who are examples of, you know, being at the right place at the right time. Uh, sure. the, and, you know, I, I get it. Like it's kind of frustrating advice, you know, just be at the right place at the right time. Right. It's that easy. Um, but you know, I would, I would offer. Uh, especially to you know younger scholars who might be listening to this, the best analogy I've ever heard was by um, a brilliant sociologist named Cecilia Ridgway, who I don't know well, but and she I'm sure doesn't remember this interaction. But when I was a young um, scholar visiting her department at Stanford, um, you know, we suddenly launched into this you know this really fascinating conversation about like how does one ask the big questions and how does one you know. Uh, stay on top of things and she's like it's really like waves you know we're, we're all just surfing waves and what you want to be doing is looking for the wave that's cresting you know almost like a surfer would you know you want to be looking out kind of a little bit beyond everyone but you also want to make sure there's a wave to to take you in so you know you don't want to be you know paddling forever but this idea that you know some of it is out of our control is actually a little liberating too because then you can become a scholar of the waves you know you can try to you know, detect the patterns and, and, and look at where things are breaking. And sometimes, of course, the wave just crashes on top of you, which, if I'm being honest, is probably more more the experience I had with data science. You know, it's just kind of like it was so obvious that this is the way things had to move at the time. Yeah, yeah, no. And uh, yeah, finding those those special intersections of, uh, you know, like you were saying, the new techniques that become available um, you know, so so many of these fortuitous situations happen as a response to uh, new technological advances and increases in financial resources going into those things, which data data science is a paradigmatic example of, yeah. um, of, that, of that sort of thing. But I, okay, so I wanna 
I want to try and connect some of the dots that we've, that we've laid. Oh out. boy. So I want yeah, to... It's going to be hard. <laughs> Oh, I hope right. it'll be rewarding. Okay. I, th I think yeah. you're right. There's little, there'll be some zigs and zags, but I, but I think it'll be, it'll be worth doing. So I want right, to, I do want to ask a little bit more about, uh, your relationship with Michelle Lamont. What, um, so you mentioned, sure. you know, she was big on, uh, you want, you need to persevere through the, the tough times. What are, what are some other things that stuck with you from your, um, your, your days with her? Yeah, I think hard work, you know, um, just, um, you know, realizing that doing good work takes an enormous amount of time. Um, and that, you know, um, sometimes, um, you know, progress means kind of keeping your wheels spinning. Um, and sometimes to kind of figure out where you're going, you gotta, you gotta start taking some steps to, she was so, um, she was so great on that, that point. I think also, um, really, um, you know, my, one of my pet peeves was, sociology is that it can be very parochial you know we tend to focus on the u.s a lot and i'm guilty of this too i mean my last you know two major books are about the u.s um but you know really understanding that you know there's a whole other world out there and i i, I had the great fortune especially through connections with michelle to spend time in in paris and in london um, as a visiting graduate student and connect with people that you know made an enduring impact so you know, someone who has that kind of international um, connection um, is is pretty unique, at least in sociology. So that's definitely something I would um, I would I would say as a as it was a key um, uh, a key function of. You know, the other thing that was interesting is like ultimately, though I, I kind of came to do you know, believe it or not, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a, I identify as a computational social scientist, but when I showed up at Harvard, I wanted to do like in depth interview work. I mean, that was that was why I wanted to work with Michelle. And one of the interesting things is, you know, like uh, a lot of, you know, some people, so I think some people are surprised to hear that, you know, I'm Pierre Bourdieu's nephew in some sense, you know, and that, and that my advisor is the great qualitative scholar, Michelle Lamont. And, uh, you know, but for me, that was actually a real advantage, um, you know, because it allowed me to kind of, I think, bring some of the sensibilities of the qualitative research tradition to the quantitative realm, you know, right at a time when it was right for doing that. But, you know, that blending, you know, she never once said things like, oh, well, this, you know, text analysis you're learning is worthless, or, you know, you, you know, she never pushed me back towards, towards her work. In fact, if I'm remembering correctly, a few times she, she encouraged me to, to take my own directions um, quite apart from her. So, you know, I think this idea that, you know, you, you, there's always this tension, you know, how do you distinguish yourself from your advisor, but, um, if you look at the many students she's advised over the years, I mean, they've been just all over the place. And so I'm happy to be part of that club. Yeah. So this, this, I think sort of, you, you've, you've illustrated nicely a point that I'm really interested in is that, so, okay. So we know that data science circa, whatever you want to say, 2005, you know, mm -hmm. give or take, if you started in there, you were getting in on the ground floor. Awesome. Well, it wasn't even called data science. Right. I mean, people weren't even using the term big data. It was still, yeah, it was still. Hundred percent. So you, yeah. we all know you are early to the game. But what's really fascinating about that is that you decided to you you sensed that something big was happening here, and you brought with uh you you brought into that game a skill set that would have marked you as more or less completely unique from your peers who are perhaps coming at things from a technical point of view and saying okay great here's all the technical things that we could do you had a much 
you had a very deeply rooted understanding of what kind of questions, if one had data available and had analysis techniques available, would be interesting to ask to get at the core questions of uh, identity, social embeddedness, etc., that have been the traditional purview of sociology. Um, and I think that's that's a hugely powerful part of this thing as well. And so I guess uh, a, a, a question off of that is that, so when you looked at what was happening with computational social science early days, did you already have technical skills that you were bringing to the table? Was that, you know, sort of a daunting thing? How did you look out towards that frontier with, with, with what you had in, in a relatively traditional sociological, yeah. you know, background? Mm -hmm. Well, first, thanks for saying those kinds of word, kind words. I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, and, you know, I, I was, I mean, above all, I was lucky. Um, you know, back at this point, if you wanted to learn how to code, you basically had to go, most people would have to go to computer science department and take, you know, Java 101 or C++ or something like that. And um, one of the neat things about being in kind of Gary King's orbit is that, you know, there was, there was at the time no classes, you know, there were no, um, there was definitely not a class called computational social science, and there was definitely not a class on, on data science or anything like that. And so pretty much all of us, as far as I could tell, were learning from each other um, in very, you know, um, ad hoc and inefficient ways. So, you know, I was sitting in on, on, on groups of people watching them code, they were um, passing some and sharing some code to me. I was reading everything I could on the internet, which is like a terrible way to learn. And then I was really, really fortunate to wind up at the University of Michigan for a postdoc. And, you know, though I had planned to spend a lot of time in the sociology department there, um, I actually wound up spending all my, almost all my time with computer scientists and really just delving in. And, and a postdoc is an extraordinary luxury, um, in, in especially uh, like one like I had um, with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is really meant to give you the opportunity to kind of reset and, if you like, acquire a new skill. And so it was really there um, that, you know, I developed a lot of the skills that I have now. And, um, but, you know, this, this experience, um, especially being someone who had, you know, I, I, you know, sure, I took stats with, you know, um, all sorts of brilliant people at, at, at Harvard and, and had had that kind of training. But, you know, the, the translation into computer science, especially in data science, was not a easy one and, and it was very awkward. And in fact, it was so challenging that that's why I've put so much of my energy lately into creating new resources for younger scholars to, to learn much more efficiently than I did. Mm, yeah. So this is a slightly separate, but I think related question is, is what were the books around this time that you were reading that had the biggest influence on, on how you thought either from, you know, the perspective of the more traditional sociology stuff about identity, et cetera, or, yeah. um, you know, on the nascent field of how to apply computer scientific mm -hmm. techniques to that. Sure. I mean, I have always been under the spell of Norbert Elias, the, the German, um, sociologist slash social psychologist. Um, I just, you know, was, I, I absolutely adored the civilizing process, his, you know, most well-known book, um, which is a, he calls it a sociogenesis of, of psychology. And really he's out to explain, um, you know, how human societies evolve. I mean, which is just like, you know, it's a huge question that I really admire, you know, 
people who, who can who can really pull it off. And um, you know, he's kind of he's not very well read. Um, he's um, you know he, he didn't become he didn't kind of rise to prominence until very late in his career. He actually was teaching in, in Sub-Saharan Africa when I think he died at, at the ripe age of, I think, 90. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I kind of promptly began devouring everything he had written because it was exactly what I was interested in. You know, how does identity and, 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 and social psychology, how is it rooted in the broader social system? Um, you know, he anticipated um, ideas about things like emergence or the tendency for, you um, social units to transform each other as they interact each other, producing outcomes that we couldn't anticipate, um, you know, a priori, um, because this interactive dimension of, of, of social life is, is, is where all the rich sociology really happens, uh, especially, you know, in, 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 uh, when, you, when you think of social networks or, or interactional sociology traditions. Um, so um, certainly, you know, he was kind of my, one of my guiding um, forces from the Kind of theoretical standpoint. I think also the, the taking the long view of history. I think was was also really exciting to me at the time. And then I, you know, as far as data science and and computational social science, again, it was so new. Um, I mean, there really weren't books written, and and even now, there's still very few books written. Um, but I'd have to say, um, you know, someone like Duncan Watts, the um, you know the great social network theorist, um, you know, was was someone who just seemed so exciting to me. I mean, he. You know, he'd written a line in one of his um, early books um, that said something like, you know, the, the age of the golden age of social science is here. You know, we finally found our telescope. You know, I, and this, of course, described, you know, the voluminous amount of data that had emerged around that time. And that, you know, now all of the limitations, you know, sociology had to, you know, uh, kind of um, imperfectly impersonate harder sciences. And, and now we had all the data to do it. So it was like a rallying cry. And I think that I'm sure I'm not the only computational social science scientist who was, you know, really, really excited about that idea. So I think, yeah, if I had to choose, like, are we talking like two books on a desert island? Yeah, maybe, maybe those would be the two. Um, Duncan Watts is um, um, era six degrees of separation or, or everything is obvious and, and Norbert Elias is uh, the civilizing process. And then also, um, this great book he wrote later in his life called The Germans, which explains decivilizing processes. And I think now um, that book is probably more relevant than ever. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. That's really good. Cody here. If you're hearing this, then my guest and I probably just finished talking about the books that have most influenced their way of thinking. This is always one of my favorite questions. One reason is because a person's favorite books or a smattering of the ones that come to mind at any rate, is such an interesting portrait of the way they think. But it's also a great way to find new books. There are so many books out there, especially ones that seem hot right now. But let's face it, not every one of them is going to really change the way you think about something important. One of the most effective ways to find those high-value titles is to read the things that have been most impactful to the people you admire or look up to. Speaking personally, after these interviews, I often find myself ordering the books we talked about or other books by the author that I may not have read prior to our conversation. And so I've started compiling book lists based on each episode of Cognitive Revolution. Each list collects a few of the books we talked about, any notable works by the author, and whatever else I thought would fit nicely with the rest. I appreciate you listening to Cognitive Revolution, and I genuinely hope you get something out of these conversations. If you do, 
I have no doubt some of these books will also be of interest to you. Instead of asking for money to support this podcast through Patreon or some other service, I'm asking you to buy a book. My book lists are hosted through bookshop.org. If you're in the US or UK, you can buy a book on my list, or actually any available book, and 10% of your purchase goes to supporting this podcast. You can find my list at bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash lowercase cognitive revolution. In the UK, it is uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. Buying a book through these lists is the best way to support the Cognitive Revolution podcast, so please check them out and see if anything catches your eye. Yeah, you know, so we're talking about the waves analogy, and, uh, you know, we want to hit an idea ideally well you know the the crest hasn't happened yet so you can you could ride it and that sort of stuff and i mm-hmm. i kind of suspect that even though yes it would be very nice if we could all get in on you know a decade later it would become computational social science in 2005 and that 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 sounds great but i think that uh you know going with the the telescope analogy as well i do think that we are just at the beginning of understanding not only what data from social media and other large-scale online resources can give us, but also an understanding of how they are changing the way we, I, you know, maybe I'll go so far as to say changing the nature of our psychology. Yeah. Um, and when you look at, you know, I, I would compare it to something like, um, you know, if, if you look at, what writing does to psychology it is the you know traditionally in psychology we talk about um, working memory which is you know basically what you can hold in your mind for 10 seconds or so a couple couple items and then you've got long-term memory which is your storage in your brain that you can retrieve lots of stuff and your you know your mom's birthday and this and that um, and writing fundamentally changed human psychology by giving us a third memory that like when we write something down, we no longer have to keep that in working or long memory. We have that mm-hmm. stored in that memory there. Um, and so you can look at historical processes like that and their effects on the way changing the way humans think. I think that we are just at the very beginning of A, social media changing the fundamental nature of the way people think, and B, of course, subsequent to that, social science understanding of what exactly that change is. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's interesting, like, um, you know, my, my good friend and, and colleague and collaborator, Matt Salganik has a great book called bit by bit, um, where he introduces, you know, this idea of kind of the hype cycle, you know, which is what a hype cycle isn't his idea, but applying it to this field is the idea. And it's kind of like, you know, when these things first come online, you know, it's like, oh my God, we can answer all the questions we couldn't answer. And, you know, this, you know, peak of expectations, you know, and then we come crashing down. I mean, in that, I mean, in, in the case of, of uh, computational social science, there were some real public failures. You know, the one that sticks out to me most is the Google flu. So, you know, you may know um, that, you know, years ago, Google was tracking the flu with kind of Google search terms. And um, it was discovered, you know, pretty early on that it was an extremely precise estimate of the prevalence of influenza in the U.S. at the time. 
so much so that there was even some inkling or some discussion about do we still need to do the the kind of weekly or monthly surveys that like the Centers for Disease Control does um, because this data is so accurate. And then you know the story of like one day um, Google's estimates of influenza outpaces the CDC's estimates you know by a factor of I think it was like 1.5, and people are you know understandably freaking out because they're asking is this some new pandemic? Um, you know, this all sounds eerie in the age of COVID-19, but really at the time it, it was it was scary. And it turns out, no, you know, it was simply a change in the way that um, Google was administering ads to people who had been searching for symptoms of the common cold and then led them to believe that they might have the flu. And then they started Googling search terms associated with the flu. And it, it, it you know, is this shock to the system because the idea or the pretense, right? I might even say the hubris that we could just crack all the problems with social media data or you know Google data or Google search data just came crashing right down. You know, I mean, we, you know, and, and people are also, as, as people do during these kind of, I, I don't know if it's fair to call it a paradigmatic shift, but I think other people are doing it. So let's call it that. Um, you know, is is this, the skepticism actually serves a healthy function, right? We, uh, we um, you know, people were saying things like, well, you know, Twitter, Twitter's, Twitter users are not representative of the general population. What people say on Facebook is not what they're saying offline, and it's a highly selective account. And these were very, very important things. And in the early years of this field, you know, it was almost enough to just, you know, throw up a pretty visualization of the Twitter network and say, you know, look how cool it is that I'm able to map this network of 100,000 Twitter users. And, you know, people were excited. Um, I was excited. And then, you know, those of us, though, I think, you know, having trained as a qualitative researcher in some way, and having done research that, um, you know, my first book, for example, combined some of the latest advances in automated text analysis with in-depth interviews, I kind of had this, you know, this, I did have this intuition that, you know, we were getting a very incomplete record of what was going on. And, and certainly, you know, in the last now five, six years, I think, you know, it's clear as day that, you know, we can't, we can't just use social media data alone, or really any kind of digital trace data alone. To, to, to tell the stories we need to, 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 to get the, to answer the questions we need to. To me, uh, the larger point there is that, you know, it doesn't matter how sophisticated your data set or your algorithms are. Ultimately, if you're doing something that is a thin description of a very complicated thing, in this case, societal function, uh, you know, you're going to need some sort of uh, added thickness to it to, uh, to get it all sides. Otherwise you're only going to be getting, you know, a sliver, a thin slice or a thin description of, of, of what's going on. And I think that's true regardless if you're using the internet and computers or talking to people and, and, and whatever, sure. there's, 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 exactly. there's always going to be that, that kind of trade off. But sure. I think your, your approach to things is so, uh, you know, it, there's this line that you wrote in your, in your book, which is that, so one of the fundamental arguments that you make is that so what we think about as the problem of social media is that it creates echo chambers and you say well okay that's not quite right i don't think that's quite the fundamental issue and one of the things that you diagnose is is what's happening with social media is that it allows us to quote present different versions of ourselves observe what other people think of them and revise our identities accordingly and that to me is such a powerful statement because it gets to that thing that I was, you know, mentioning, which is that that, that is a, that represents a fundamental shift in our psychology to some extent. 
a fundamental potential shift and one that's going to continue to play out in society, you know, over over the coming decades. And yeah. I think you've you've touched on that in uh, a very interesting, but what is ultimately, you know, an excitingly a nascent way. Uh, there's so much more to to uncover about that. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, and one of the reasons why I, I got on this line of research was because, you know, I think the the you know one another one of my heroes as a young scholar was Peter Bierman, the the, the famous network sociologist from from uh, Columbia. And he had always had this idea of kind of just so stories, you know, stories that just seemed a little too perfect. And um, I remember it was about, uh, you know, a few, I don't know, a few weeks after Trump was elected. And um, I was teaching uh, my computational social science seminar at, at, at Duke, and we had launched for the first time the Summer Institutes in Computational Social Science, which is this large international training program that I co-founded in Matt Salgani. And, um, you know, we were, we, you know, everybody, I think, was was struggling to understand how the, the poll forecast had been so wrong. And, you know, um, I certainly, you know, was looking through my social media feed each night. And, you know, it seemed inevitable that Hillary Clinton was going to win. You know, I, you know I'm, a, I'm a professor and, you know, to the extent that our field leans left, you know, most of my, a lot of my social media feed leans left. And so, you know, I, I was as convinced as, as everyone that, that it was a sure thing that nobody was going to win. So, so this idea of the echo chamber is enormously seductive. You know, it's like, aha, you know, the, what was happening was we're all segregated in, the, in these kind of, you know, uh, like-minded networks. Um, you know, social media is amplifying our human tendency to connect with people like us. And this surely explains how, you know, someone like me could have been so shocked by Trump's victory, you know, when I was... You know, I, I didn't see the kind of charisma or energy that Obama had been creating in my social media feed. And so I thought, you know, there's no way this goes on. And, um, you know, um, incidentally, though, it does remind me that I, uh, at the time, um, I think a lot of people were grasping for explanations. And someone from the Washington Post called me up one day and said, you just, you just wrote a book called, you know, with the subtitle, How, How Fringe Organizations Became Mainstream, you know, I, how did you see all this coming? And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I had, you know, I had no idea. I, I, you know, this guy I think wanted me to, you know, say I had, had predicted this outcome. I was like, no, I was as shocked as everybody. So, so I was, you know, I, I, I thought this was the answer. And, you know, by the way, this idea of the echo chamber is really old. I mean, you know, all the way back to like Paul Lazarsfeld and the tradition of research started in Columbia in the 19. 19- 40s and 50s, you know, we've been we've been on this idea that our social networks kind of insulate us from a fuzzy view. So it just seemed like a very tidy explanation. And the strange thing about tidy explanations is that, you know, they often seem so intuitive that we don't test them. And so, um, you know, one thing um, I was thinking is like, well, let's just, you know, let's bring some social science here. We've got, you know, we've got a lot of tech leaders talking about this. We've got a lot of journalists talking about this, but where's the data? And so we, um, we designed actually started in my in my graduate class. I had been planning um, to, to start a line of research like this, and every year in my class, I encouraged the students to join a kind of group research project with me to um, to really kind of learn on the fly. Because to your earlier question of how you acquire these skills, I think you just have to do it. And um, and so we had a really interesting group. It, it began as you know four or five students in my class, and then eventually um, several people from the Summer Institutes in Computational Social Science that I was involved in um, became involved in the work too. 
And, you know, we thought, well, let's see if we can do an experiment. And, um, you know, that's another thing that was uh, a, a, a somewhat unusual move in sociology at the time. I think sociology has been a little allergic to experiments. Um, we, we really, you know, so much of our bag is that, you know, um, you know, we need to understand the complete picture. And so I think a lot of sociologists write off experiments as kind of artificial uh, tests that, you know, really don't tell us much more than what, say, you know, a bunch of college students might think about something to the extent that we usually do experiments with college students. And so, you know, at the same time, there's this enormous, you know, really exciting trend in a lot of other fields towards field experiments, you know, experiments that we actually run in the real world. And, you know, they're extraordinarily difficult to pull off, you know, experiments in general are hard to pull off, but um, certainly if you're trying to, you know, deliver some kind of experimental treatment in the real world, you know, people are not, you know, sheep, you can't just, you know, tell someone you do this and you do that, you know, much as the ideal way to test this echo chamber hypothesis might be to say, you know, lock people in a room and show them, you know, if they're, if they're Democrat Fox News for a month and, and vice versa for conservatives, like, obviously, you can't do those kinds of things. So we, we were looking for ways to get creative. And, you know, I had been following all the research on bots, you know, um, which was really interesting to me, because I had spent a lot of time studying misinformation about Muslims in my first book called Terrified. And so I was kind of interested, like, like, you know, these bots are obviously part of the problem, too. That turned out to be wrong, too. I'll, I can talk, talk to you more about that later, if you like. But, but the key point is that, um, you know, we saw, um, we, we saw an opportunity to use these bots that had been linked to, you know, malicious campaigns to divide the American electorate to, uh, to, to science, to, to a new way to, to test ideas. And so what we did in this study is we recruited a large group of Republicans and Democrats who use Twitter to follow, um, half of them followed uh, Twitter bots that we created that retweeted messages from members of the opposing party uh, who were, say, politicians, journalists, um, advocacy organizations, even some media outlets, and so on. And so we were finally able to like, like test the idea um, that you know whether taking someone outside of their echo chamber would make them more moderate. Yeah, yeah, no, there's there's, there's so much there, and there's uh, it's so interesting to hear about the the work that you guys have done on that. We're we're right at a, an hour right now, so I'm just curious: do you have a hard stop uh, at this time, or do you have a couple more minutes to do a couple more questions? I can do a couple more minutes. Yeah, um, yeah, I got to go in a, in about uh, uh, fifteen minutes, but, but but other than that, I'm good. Yeah, no, so I mean, there's there's. Um, uh, I'm trying to tread a line here that is both uh, alluding to what you talk about and in your book, but also trying to get you to speculate a little bit about the future. So next time the Washington Post comes and says that you <laughs> predicted something, we'll be able to have a documented record that says, no, no, no. In fact, this guy's predictions were, were all wrong. Um, <laughs> so we'll try and straddle that line there. But um, yeah. one thing that I'm interested to think about is, is how does the social media landscape change post-Trump, right? Because, you know, we always hear people say, well, Trump didn't cause this. Trump's just a symptom of the thing. And yeah, okay, sure. But, um, you know, at some point, having the presidents of the United States sending out incendiary tweets yeah. on an hourly basis does has a, have a causal effect on what's mm -hmm. happening in the, you know, discourse of American society. And now we have Absolutely. a president who's like most... Uh, you know, sort of controversial thing is the fact that, you know, he like tweets pictures of himself like in motion 
in the same kind of like, you know, like here's me walking down the the sidewalk on, you know, like, you know, he thinks that that, right. So there's, like there's, there's a, there's a big change there. How does yeah. the social media landscape change post Trump? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, it, it made it a lot easier for people like me who are trying to convince everyone that social media had a, an, an important impact on, on politics and on society, you know, but believe it or not, um, 10 years ago, I kept getting asked the question, like, is this social science? Like, are you doing sociology when you're talking about, say, Facebook data or Twitter data? So, so nobody asks those questions anymore. And I, of course, you know, Trump has a, has a big role in that. We've all seen, you know, a tweet can shape, shape the stock market or can, you know, precipitate a social movement and, um, or violence. And um, so I think, you know, um, the, the impact is, is undeniable. But I think, you know, you know, earlier we were talking about the hype cycle and, and how things change over time and, and sort of taking a long view. And one thing that's really tricky in this in this kind of moment in a in a paradigmatic shift, I think, is that you know the change is happening so rapidly that what we knew like two or three years ago might be quite wrong, you know, three or four years from now. Um, and that's not just because, you know, we don't have enough studies, but because society itself is changing in response to this dynamic. So, um, you know, um, certainly, um, it's impossible to imagine, you know, political campaigns without social media. Now it's impossible to imagine most things without social media now. And so that alone, you know, changes all these dynamics in ways that I think are, are really difficult to understand. But I think, you know, the main thing, and just to maybe if I may just, you know, take it back to, to my book a little bit here is that, you know, it's creating a new way for us to create identities, um, which is this thing that is all too human, right? If there's one thing that we do that is uniquely human, it is, it is, you know, cultivate identities that give us a sense of self-worth and a sense of status. And, um, you know, we, we of course we did, you know, we did this long before social media, but the interesting questions I think are how is social media changing the way that we create our identities, and you know, you know, uh, you you know, earlier you 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 mentioned some of the part of the book where I talk about how we kind of naturally experiment on our identities each day. We present different versions of ourselves. We we observe how other people react, and we cultivate the kind of identities that make us feel good about ourselves. So the interesting question to me is like, how does the landscape of social media transform this fundamental human process and instinct? And I think it does does so in two main ways. The first is that we have kind of unprecedented, unprecedented uh, flexibility in what types of identities we can create. Um, you know, so like if you meet me in person, um, you know, I, I could I can't convince you that like I'm a good dancer or I'm I'm like a basketball player, right? It just doesn't like you know doesn't doesn't uh, add up. But online, right? I could be someone quite different. I could you know I could change my hypothetically, especially on platforms that 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 don't. Um, you know, require identity verification, I could change my race or my gender or my age or also, or at a minimum, I can present a highly selective version of myself. Um, so there's just unprecedented flexibility in how we can present our identities in social settings. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that there are powerful new tools that we can use to monitor our social environment to see which ones of those identities are quote unquote working, which ones are, are, are making people uh, like us or, or, or revere us. 
And, um, you know, we've got follower accounts, we've got like buttons, we've got, you know, all sorts of ways of automating this. And of course, you know, these, you know, we already knew long before social media that humans are terrible at reading social cues, right? We, we're, we, there's all sorts of kind of built-in cognitive biases and, you know, that, that lead us to, to, to develop in, in a um, distorted picture of how our social uh, setting is shaping our identities. And yet with social media, I think that's just gotten gone into hyperdrive. And, and really, um, you know, that's why in this book, I, even though, you know, I, I wanted to offer some innovative experience, experiments from computational social science using, you know, bots and using tools of data science, I also really wanted to look at real people using social media over time and, and talk to them about their experience. And, and as I did this, this was where the aha moment came along. You know, saw just how different people can be online and off, and and what consequence that has for the rest of us. That sounds like it goes back to uh, learning about semi-structured interviews from none other than Professor Le Michelle Lamont. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, and again, also though for the field, you know, knowing that this is a liminal moment, you know, where we're going to figure out these questions of what what is the place of social media data in the broader landscape. But, you know, it really, you know, it, it enabled, I would say, the, some of the biggest discoveries in the book. So, for example, um, one thing that's really hard to do um, as a as someone who's studied, you know, extremism and fringe movements for a long time is get access to people on the extreme side of the continuum. You know, they don't like to talk to researchers. Um, you know, they might provide very selective accounts of what they're doing. And hard to, to kind of meet them before they become extreme. There's all sorts of methodological challenges. But um, what we were able to do in this study is do longitudinal in-depth interviews within a, embedded within a longitudinal qualitative field experiment, embedded within a quantitative field experiment that was much larger. And so basically what we're able to do is track these people um, who we studied online, get to know them really, really well, and then also give them surveys. And so we have kind of three points to triangulate, you know, um, what goes on online and what goes on offline. And the stories we discovered are, are, are just remarkable. I think like one of, one of the ones that really sticks out to me is this guy who I'll call Ray. And Ray, you know, as someone who's been studying uh, social media and extremism for the better part of a decade, he's probably the most extreme person I've ever seen on social media. I mean, just like unspeakable vitriol He's a, he's a very conservative man. He, you know, meme after meme, bemoaning liberal hypocrisy and, you know, you know, pictures of Nancy Pelosi that are, you know, absolutely, you know, vile and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, and so, you know, we, we, we kind of, we see this guy on social media and then I, I'm thinking to myself, well, this is going to be an interesting interview. You know, like, uh, I would, <laughs> this is going to be, this is going to be strange. Um, and, um, I, I, uh, the, the, this interview was actually done, um, at a different point in time um, by a different member of the team. So I didn't, I didn't actually look at it first, but I was analyzing the data. And then when we saw the, the transcript, oh my God, he's the nicest, most deferential, polite man. He's going out of his way to say how much he hates, you know, uh, racism and how much, you know, uh, people who are extremists online are just losers who live with their mother, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, we look at the survey data it turns out he's a middle-aged unemployed man or underemployed man who lives with his mother. So it's like, you know, wow, you know, if we had just looked at the social media data, we would, we would have gotten an, an extremely incomplete picture of what's going on. And most importantly, 
we wouldn't understand his motivation, you know, the, the social psychology here, which in his case turned out to be that um, he was such a social ice, outcast in his everyday life that social media, we learned, provided him a real sense of status, even if it was driven by other extremists, and even if it was very artificial and none of these people were going to say have him over for dinner, um, it really motivated him and kept him going late into the night and, and um, really, you know, gave him a sense of purpose, however, um, you know, deleterious for the rest of us. God, that's so fascinating. This is uh, this is kind of random. Have you ever come across the book Them Adventures with Extremists by John Ronson? Yeah, yeah, I love John Ronson. I, I, all of his books. I yeah, mean, they're all, they all he, touch on that. Yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, he, I think for anyone who's not familiar with his work, he, to me, he's the example of the person who takes the project of trying to figure out what is the actual kind of like day-to-day of an extremist look like let's take yeah. seriously about like actually getting their perspective and not just, you know, sort of caricature caricaturing. Right. He's the person who takes that prob- problem most seriously, of course, as a journalist, not necessarily as a social scientist, but it is of course sure. social scientific in nature. So I think that's a very, yeah. no, and I think it's great work. And, you know, I think like I'm, I'm very much for this book trying to reach a, a broader audience. And that was something that um, I've been interested in doing for a long time. I mean, you know, we started off talking about, altruism and and how you know i i i at the in the end i'm like even, even i can be pretty pessimistic about um some parts of human nature and social media in the end i i'm actually a little bit of i'm cautiously optimistic that that some of the problems are solvable and that moreover like you know we academics need to engage the public in in you know at the scale that you know of course we can't engage at the scale that ron johnson would but you know we need to be out there um you know talking and, and engaging so much more than we are because the current debate about social media politics is, you know, you've got some apocryphal tech leaders, um, you've got some probably self-interested politicians, and then uh, a lot of pundits who, you know, are happy to, you know, opine about the, the most fashionable theory of the, 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 the hour, you know, misinformation or algorithms, or whatever, but very few people who actually can bring data to bear on the question. and. Um, I think, you know, um, it's, it's really important that, that we get the research out there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to say that's going along with what you're talking about with your, with your interviews that you actually went out and talked to these people. I think it comes across in the book that the stories that you tell are actually really important to the points that you want to make. Cause one thing that is sort of a product of the modern, you know, I'm an academic talking to broader audience landscape those sort of trade book things is that we all know okay now you have to tell stories in order to illustrate your your data and your theories and your points that sort of stuff and most people it's like well you know i came up with this theory let me go find some things on you know the mm-hmm. stories that corroborate that and right. I, I feel like that strat that stratagem has become very thin uh and sort of flimsy over time and one thing that kind of stood out to me uh in, in reading your book was that it's like wow uh these stories are not just like, he didn't just pluck these and these are like, you know, some post hoc things. Like these are actually integral to the point that he's making. And that's really cool. It makes the book a powerful read. And I think you did a very good job of that. And I'm excited to hear what other people make of that. So. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. Chris, thank you for taking the time to talk today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this week on cognitive revolution. As always, thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd love to hear from you. 
you can send me an email at cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com or a direct message on Twitter at Cody Commerce. You can also get updates on all the latest episodes by following at CogRevPod. If you want to support the show, you can do so by purchasing a book at bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitivevolution, or if you're in the UK, uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitivevolution. If you enjoy the show, I'd also appreciate it if you would consider subscribing through whichever platform you may be listening on or leaving a review on iTunes. These numbers are one of the main drivers of bringing in new listeners to the show. If you want to connect with me more generally, you can do so on Instagram at Cody Commerce. And if you want to keep up with my writing, the best way to do so is to subscribe to my Substack at codycommerce.substack.com. Oh, and by the way, you can also listen to my travel podcast, Notes from the Field, through whichever platform you may currently be listening on. Finally, you can find more about me and my work at codycommerce.com. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.